Hello, everybody. This is Brian. Now, if you're listening to this, you probably know that I'm in a band called Ninja Sex Party. But what you may not know is that Ninja Sex Party is currently on tour. So we're, we're touring all over the U.S. and one date in Canada and Toronto. But if you want to see us, we'd really appreciate that. Go to ninjasexparty.com slash tour for tickets. And also, I'm doing some solo shows, which we're calling Ninja Brian's All-Star Variety Spectacular. You'll see me, the Super Guitar Bros. Jim Roach and I are going to do some of our tracks from our band, Go Banana Go. The other thing, I'm doing my smooth jazz stuff there, too. I've never played these before, some of my new smooth jazz tracks. You can get those tickets at ninjasexparty.com slash tour as well. So speaking of going off the rails, one of the first times I came on the podcast as the guest, Bobby, I brought up your anecdote about Dr. Ramachandran. Ramachandran? Dr. Ramachandran. Ramachandran. Okay, anyways. Is this the foot thing? Yes, the foot thing. Oh, Ramachandran, so many more things besides the foot thing. But yeah, I want to okay. hear them all, especially the foot stuff. <laughs> I swear we need a swear jar for foot stuff mentions. <laughs> I actually think we need a wall of mason jars where it's like diners, foot stuff. It's like a motif. It keeps coming up or what? Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. So here we go again. <laughs> okay, so some background then on this concept then to lead into this, I guess. So Ramachandran, yeah, he's like a leading neuroscientist, you know, like keynote speaker at these neuroscience conventions, like uh -huh. super heavy hitter in the field. And so one of the many things that he is like famous for is neuroplasticity. So this is like the brain rewiring itself. And so there's a few different examples of this, like synesthesia, where people correlate like musical notes to smells or colors. Yep. And another one of those examples too is like uh, where people have phantom limbs where like they get their hand chopped off totally. and they still feel a phantom hand, but then they'll feel their phantom hand in their face because on the somatosensory cortex, where all of your body parts are represented, the hand and the face area are right next to each other. And so the idea is that the brain kind of rewires itself. So the brain, you know, it's thought of as like this modular thing where each part of the brain does this, this part of the brain does that, but it can rewire itself apparently. So that's one of the examples is like the phantom limb felt in the face. But another yeah. example is the foot fetish. And mm -hmm. so the feet area and the genitalia area air are, horn, air horn, air horn, air horn. are right next <laughs> to each other on uh, the somatosensory cortex. And so the sort of leading theory on the origin of foot fetish is that it comes from that, from neuroplasticity. So at the time, as an undergrad at UCSD, fine institution, fine research institution, yeah. I was into Ramachandran because I you know, read his books on tour and stuff. And I was, you know, doing a music degree. And then I was like, oh, he's teaching. I got to take his classes, you know, for fun. It wasn't part of my major or something, but I took mm -hmm. them. And so I started to talk to his grad students. I was an older undergrad at this point. I had already like done like... 15 years of touring. And then so I was like, I was like yeah. the 35 year old undergrad, like the weird guy, <laughs> you know, like, oh, what's the old guy doing here? What years were you there? I was a grad student at UCSD. Graduated technically 2011, but it was really early 2012. Okay, cool. I was there from 98 to 04 as a grad student. Ah, a fine institution, fine institution. Indeed. So anyway, I was in those classes thinking about that stuff. And I was like, 
hmm, maybe there's a correlation of circumcision and foot fetish. And because it's like phantom foreskin, but the weird thing is like- Dope band name, phantom foreskin. (laughs) (laughs) It was a strange idea because of the phantom limb thing. It's like you have to get your hand chopped off and then it rewires to the neighboring area, which is the face. But if you had your foreskin cut off, which- you know, it's like one of the most sensitive areas of the male body oh, yeah, and was- how many things can be rewired from there. Because normally you'd think like, oh, well, you're going to feel phantom foreskin in your foot would be the normal idea. But I thought, well, maybe there's something weirder happening there because on the somatosensory cortex, it seems like everything kind of ends at the genitalia area. I don't know. I had some weird ideas of like, oh, maybe this is like the origin of jealousy. Maybe this is like you (laughs) feel that you are part of someone else's body. And so, you know, maybe that's maybe the drive of sexuality itself is like this super empathy thing where you see someone else's body and it's actually perceived as your own. So anyway, it's like, yeah, so maybe that's how this could happen. And so then I did some survey research on my own and the findings seemed to indicate that there was indeed a higher percentage of people who had foot fetishes that were circumcised than not. And it was strange. And so I brought this information to the grad students at the time who were like my age. They were like, whoa, you kind of got something here. So I had convinced them, here's this older undergrad music major convincing the neuroscience people, you know, to like run a study that I had conceived and designed and like it was like all set up and I had negotiated like through Ramachandran and that it was going to be like if it got published and if it showed this result like that my name would be on the research and like not really any desires to go into science you know legitimately or whatever you know but I was just like that would be really cool to have my name with Ramachandran because I you know I respect him so much so then we did the research officially the way you're supposed to do it and um, it didn't yield the results I was looking for unfortunately (laughs) no connection huh no statistical connection you know when you do research you just have to have a comparison. Um, yeah. And so the comparison was like S&M, like, you know, whips and stuff. And mm-hmm. I feel like maybe there's a double correlation to that. I don't know. But anyway, it didn't yield the results. So it's a tale of um, research gone awry and not yielding the that results happens. that you wanted. But then being ethical and not publishing some bullshit. <laughs> Well, see, that's the problem, I think, with science, probably. One of the problems is that, you know, when people don't get the results they want, they don't publish. And so then the next, like, five other research teams following logic, they go, well, maybe let's try this. And then they don't publish that. And, you know, same thing with, like, you know, drug companies probably, too. If they don't get the results they want, they just don't publish that. And then finally, the 10th research study, and it's like, cool, we got the results you wanted. This is a known thing. It's called, I think, a positivity bias in mm. science, where negative findings tend not to get published and only positive new findings get published. I used to be a scientist. There's a definite bias towards not publishing negative results because no one really cares. But what that means is a lot of really important negative results showing that there's no connection between whatever it is, just sit in a desk drawer forever or on a computer and no one ever knows about them, which is a big fucking problem because those are very important to know, right? Yeah, it's like probably holding back our species. It's probably holding back like yeah, science. And I think so. It's weird because I always like want to believe that like we got to trust the scientists. And of course, it's like, yes, trust the science rather than not trust the science. But we got to remember that the scientists are actually human beings and there's like maybe some careerism right. going on. They got to compete sure. for funding and it's like they got to oh, write yeah, books dude. and publish good stuff. It's like they're people. They got to pay, you know, for their mortgages and they have families and stuff. So that's a problem. 
<laughs> I totally agree. It is very important to be aware of biases in science. And there's a lot of them because, as you say, it's people. And sometimes this problem is especially notable, not to cast any aspersions, but in these social sciences where people maybe aren't as good with statistics and math and things like that. And also the systems are a lot messier and complicated. You know, if you have people doing kind of shoddy statistical work on a messy system, that can yield a lot of bullshit. And it's a big problem. I wanted to mention in regards to like foot and genitals being close to each other. Bobby, I assume you're familiar with like- Mine are a couple feet apart. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Brian, we need to get you like one of those little basketball hoops and a little ball so you can just like chuck it and miss. Bam, just dunk it, yeah. (laughs) Right there, yeah. But I was going to mention the cortical homunculus. Are you guys familiar with that? Oh yeah. I am not. If not, please do a Google- Wow, this is intense. It's like what that mouth do, though. (laughs) Uh. Oh, hell yeah. It's the somatosensory cortex with the proportions of like how much space on the somatosensory cortex is allocated to that body part. And so if that's, if it was represented in that way in real life, then that's what we would look like. Are y'all seeing the one with like the big old dick? No. no. (laughs) I'm looking at Wikipedia. Where's the one with the big old dick? Predictably, it's from Reddit. You may not like it, but this is what the ideal human form looks like. Unbelievable. This is such a great thing to have happening early in an episode, considering that I, over the weekend, got a text from my 12-year-old cousin being like, Leighton Night is a really cool name for a podcast. And me being like, no, 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 (laughs) no. I mean, this is some like ultra gilliam type shit. Mm. I once made a homunculus sort of costume out of like paper mache and this huge head. Awesome. I didn't do the penis part, but... That's probably a good idea. I walked around like that. (laughs) Hey, uh, Jared, Bobby, what's your guys' connection? Because you guys know each other, right? Yeah. So Bobby was my teacher at the now defunct Art Institute of California, San Diego, where I... A college of Argus University. (laughs) (laughs) Where I received my Bachelor of Arts in audio production. Bobby was my business teacher and then my second electronics teacher. And Bobby helped me modify one of my delay pedals, which I still have. Wait, wait. So that institution does not exist anymore? The Art Institute still exists, but that particular one does not. That company had got bought a couple times... Uh, it was originally like Goldman and Sachs, and then like it got oh shit, uh, Dream Center bought it, and like all these weird things kind of happened with that like place. private equity type bullshit. Yeah, it's just you know nothing is perfect. The education is fine; it just it was just overpriced. Mm-hmm. That was my big thing that was difficult for me to wrestle with as a teacher. Right, but yeah, it was cool. I mean, I got to meet Jarek. Jarek's super cool. <laughs> we worked on a project, you know, outside of class. Actually, it was the it was like using a pressure sensor to replace what was it like delay time? Yeah, it was delay time, which was cool. It's just like you could do this, and then Jarek's like, "Oh, well, let's do that." I was like, "Oh, okay, well, let's meet up and do it." Then. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So, what was that? You said it was in an electronics class. I was just about to ask this. So, did you mean? <laughs> yeah. Do you mean like an electronic music class or like an electrical audio electronics one and two? So, you know, like soldering, building cables, yeah, and like cool. troubleshooting, and Fuck yeah, you know, oscilloscopes and stuff like that. So, how much of that, Bobby? How much of that stuff did you just know by doing it versus you know being an undergraduate? like learning it in UCSD? I don't know. Like, I guess half and half. 
So the thing I studied at UCSD was interdisciplinary computing and arts in the music department. So it was like a lot of coding and stuff. There was uh-huh. you know some soldering, but it wasn't primarily that. But I did learn, you know, kind of tinkering around with stuff and like building your own stuff, building your own effects. One thing I learned at UCSD was like pure data and max MSP and like being able to like build your own audio effects and then build yep. your own interfaces for so like that stuff. Yeah, I totally learned there. And didn't you have Miller Puckett at UCSD, the guy who made oh, Max yeah. MSP? <laughs> <laughs> he was like one of the two guys that made Max MSP. I think he did the Max part and then someone else did the MSP or maybe the reverse. Can you guys just tell people what that is for those of our listeners who don't know? It's a way of programming things, but instead of like coding, you know, with traditional code like, you know, C or whatever, you know, computer code stuff, it's like essentially connecting boxes together on the screen. Looks like a big patchboard, basically. Yeah, it's called a visual programming language. Yes. There's other ones like Reactor and Max MSP is one that exists. And it's really cool. You can do stuff with Ableton. There's even Max for Live. And like, you know, it, yep. you can design your own like audio effects, which is super cool. But the thing with Miller Puckett, though, was he had some kind of disagreement or I don't know if it's like a falling out with the company that did Max MSP. And so he was like, you know what, I'm going to make a free version called Pure Data. And so there's this open source free version called Pure Data, which basically does the same exact thing. And it's super cool. So I was like a huge advocate of that for a while. And it's great for, you know, prototyping weird shit and building stuff. And so I pass that along. I saw myself as like the way of funneling all the cool stuff from UCSD and taking it to other institutions. (laughs) And so Jarek was the recipient of some of that. So sorry, (laughs) and you're welcome. I'm trying to remember, even though I was a physics grad student, I took a couple of music classes at UCSD and I did take a max class, like the very intro undergraduate, like electronic music class. I'm trying to remember who the fucking instructor would be. I got an incomplete because I got busy with physics and just didn't turn in the final project. But it was awesome. (laughs) It was my first exposure to any of that stuff. And it's just like, holy shit, what what the fuck is going on with this? Really mind-blowing when you see it for the first time. Bobby, I also do some soldering, tinkering stuff. And I saw in your interviews that you've done circuit bending stuff. I'm curious how you got into circuit bending because it's one of those things that I just think is the coolest. I think before we do that, I think we should introduce the show. Right here, and then you can answer that question. Everybody, this is Late Night with Brian Wecht. My name is with Brian Wecht. Over here, <laughs> across from me, thank you, Jarek, we have with Leighton Gray. I'm sorry, it's Late Night, according late to night, everyone who yes, thinks that is my last name and not mm-hmm. simply the name of the show. In the other corner, we got the beautiful, the inimitable Jarek. It's actually produced by Leighton Gray, Brian Wecht, and Jarek Centeno. <laughs> That's your full name. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Legally. A very long middle name. And uh, mystery guest who we cannot see, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Bobby Bray. I've devoted my life to audio and music, and I play guitar and sing in The Locust, which is probably how most people know of me. Awesome. If at all. I think not seeing your face is pretty fitting to The Locust. Okay, back to Leighton's question. Circuit bending. How did you get into circuit bending? So that was one of the things I got into before college. I don't know. I just found out about it and I thought it was cool and I wanted to do it. You know, so basically circuit bending, yeah, you connect the circuit points that don't belong together, you know, by the manufacturer as uh, design and you make things basically malfunction on purpose. You short circuit things on purpose. Great for testing. It's also good for practicing soldering because it's like if you mess up, it's like, well, you're already breaking the thing on purpose 
anyway. Yeah. yeah. It's also good practice, like the number of times I've just completely like removed traces from the board. And then it's like, how do you fix that? And then you have to learn how to fix it. And you're like, all right, cool. I'm never doing that again. <laughs> oh, like talking like Thevenin's theorem and like doing the math, or you mean just soldering I just it mean like together. literally like burning shit off of the board, then being like, <laughs> I have to get my copper tape and attach this and... Have you ever messed with Furbies? Because that's probably where yeah. most of my circuit bending experience comes from. Oh, yeah. Those are one of the sought after ones. So Furbies, Speak and Spells, Casio SK1s. Oh, Speak and Spells. Hell yeah. I yeah. saw a Speak and Spell at the flea market the other day and I was this close to buying it because oh. if you try to get them on eBay, they're like crazy expensive. It's like 50 bucks at least. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I straight up had one when I was a kid. I had a Speak and Spell, a Speak and Math. I was modding like a knockoff Speak and Spell, which was pretty fun. But as always with circuit bending, a lot of the times when you make those connections, it's kind of like doing it until it makes a cool sound or doing it until you have to take the batteries out and start over. <laughs> and Furbies are especially finicky. When you say Furby, do you mean like the furry electronic toy? Yeah. I have like seven Furbies up on my bookshelf that I'm not going to go get, but I have <laughs> too many Furbies. What would you do to them when you would circuit bend them or like re-solder shit to them? So you have to skin the Furby, first of all. Um, <laughs> and then you take it apart and it's sort of like, hold on, I'm just, fuck it, I'm going to go get some. Did you just say you weren't going to do that? <laughs> this isn't even half of my Furbies, but here's wow. one. Hell yeah. Here's my clown one, because why not? So once you take the skin off and you remove like the outer shell, you have this little abomination. Uh-huh. And it's actually very interesting how the like mechanics of it work, like the little dials that control the ears and the fucked up eyes moving. Yeah. But you get your little your little bull board there at the bottom. So here's one that I actually uh, I used to have all these bits in a Zoloft bottle, um, <laughs> but it was not really the best solution. But yeah, they really go nuts. I was modding one one time that like started smoking. It was like jittering aggressively and smoking. So mm -hmm. why did you give it a cigarette? <laughs> they like that. Yeah, thank you. So yeah, anyway, that's my Furby tangent. I got a masking spell over here. If you give me 10 seconds, I think I could probably get it. And I think there's still batteries in it if you want to hear it. Oh, hell yes, yeah. Yes, absolutely. I want to hear it. How many of those do you have, like? Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. This is new. I'm learning this about you right now. I was doing it and I was posting a lot as I was doing it, especially on like this little guy. But somebody sent the Game Grumps office like a huge box of Furbies. So wow. th that's why I have so many. Because they're also like sought after. Because people also customize the shit out of Furbies. Like there's some really fancy ones where like there's whole tutorials of how to take the pupils out. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. All right, so here's a quick sample. This is a bastion spell. So here, check it out. Dude, yes. So yeah, those are all like malfunctioning oh. sounds. Uh, aside from the beginning sound. You have no idea how much that brings me back. I used to use my speak and math all the time. Solve it, level one. <laughs> level two, level three. Oh my God, I love speaking math. It was plausibly my best friend when I was nine. <laughs> <laughs> it was like some of the first technology that would, could talk, you know, it was like breakthrough yeah. from Texas Instruments, you know. Speaking math, is it the gray one, right? The gray and blue? Blue and gray, actually, yeah, exactly, yeah. 
Speaking of circuit bending, Bobby, I remember you telling me a story how you would bend your way around a certain establishment called <laughs> with your line six <laughs> delay pedals. Would you be willing to disclose this great story? Um, <laughs> so I have heard that there's ways I know of people. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm not willing to admit whether or not I was one of those people, but uh-huh. there's this um, uh, procedure. Uh, you know, <laughs> has had this longstanding return policy, which is fantastic. You know, good on yep. them to be able to do Absolutely. that. And there's certainly been a lot of things over the years I've bought, and I was like, oh, I'll just return it later. You know, and then I end up keeping it. Like, oh, For sure. they won, they got me that they knew it. Absolutely been there. So, but you know, on the road sometimes, if you're a traveling band and like things break, line six pedals, for example, you know, you can buy another one in in the heat of the moment on a tour, and then you know, as long as the tour is, you know, ends within 30 days, you're good. But then after that, you still got to have a line six pedal that works. So on the returning part, I've heard, I've known of, there's this procedure that exists where people basically swap out the guts of the bad one with the good one. And so you return the good outer shell with the broken insides and you keep the good insides with the dirty mm-hmm. outer shell. I don't recommend a that. Theoretical possibility. That. Yep. Right. Theoretical possibility of that existing. So mm-hmm. is that what you're speaking of, Jarek? Yes, exactly. It was one of my favorite hearsay stories that you brought up when I was in college. Is now when we bring in the cops? <laughs> <laughs> the <laughs> cops? Yeah. God, the crossover of and cops is one of the most horrifying things imaginable. Yes. They come in, they're shredding. They're like, we got defunded. (laughs) Tone police. (laughs) Yeah, tone police. Yeah, exactly. That's what the name would be. Policing the tone zone. Defund the tone police. Defund the tone police. (laughs) So Bobby, it sounds like you have modded pedals. Are there any particularly cool pedal mods that you've done that aren't, you know, like the hero of your? I really haven't done too many pedal mods. What I've really done is like building my own interfaces for my own effects. So over the years, when I didn't trust gates, you know, like pedals, gates, I would use volume pedals on Locust Tours. And so I had a collection of these slightly imperfect volume pedals, the VP Juniors made by Ernie Ball. I had tons of them. And so I repurposed them as expression pedals for my effects that I would build in Pure Data. And so that was kind of cool because then, you know, in Pure Data, you can just sort of mathematically compensate for the imperfections. It's like, oh, we'll add like Mm -hmm. plus 0.25 and like there, now it's perfect. Now the all the way down is a zero and all the way up is a hundred, you know? Mm -hmm. So I used those as expression pedals, which was pretty cool. I think that was one of my favorite mods. And then an old early 80s IBM joystick uh, to control like two parameters at once, kind of like a a chaos pad kind of control. Because new controllers that are available, like the parts you can order from like Mauser or SparkFun or whatever, like those usually recoil back to the center. And so this old IBM joystick was really sturdy, can really handle it, you know, can really handle like someone stomping on it and stuff. But it also had a feature where you could make it so it didn't recoil back to the center. So Oh, that's awesome. So you just dial it to somewhere in like the XY plane and that yeah, just and sets stays. a point, right? Yeah. yeah. And that was great. Like that was cool for like a granular synthesis pitch delay kind of effect. So like feedback and then like the pitch and it was just super awesome. I still have that thing. It still functions. Would you control that with your foot? Yeah. Yeah. That's the whole idea. Absolutely. 
Was it easy to get an old IBM joystick? You know, they're on eBay or whatever, or at least they used to be. I mean, that was like over uh, 15 years ago or something. It's like a black thing. It's got a big red button on the top. That style It's got thing. a big red button. It's gray and black. Hell yeah. That was the first like joystick I'd ever like used actually for a computer game. So mm-hmm. it's like there was some nostalgia there. Wow. Yeah, I had one of those. They're totally durable. Yeah, I remember them being like huge, you know, like two and a half inches by two and a half inches on the base, something like that. Nice. Like really, really big old thing. You just plug it into some serial port or something on your PC and then you're in heaven. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful heaven. <laughs> That's awesome. Joystick heaven. Jarek, what did you learn from Bobby specifically? What are some of the lessons that you can take away from your time with our guest? Uh-oh. Oh. Or, or, or alternate question, what's something that you didn't, what am I trying to say? <laughs> you didn't learn. <laughs> yeah. In what ways did he fail you? Yes. That's, yes, that, there's the question I'm trying to All ask. Right. Thank you, Layden. That should be easy. Is there anything that Bobby taught you that you can look back on now with the benefit of hindsight and say, you know what? I'm not totally on board with that. And be savage. Jesus, Brian. I got one for you, Jarek. I just remember like years later, like I heard from you, you were self-releasing your music and like you bought ISRCs like directly from like the ISRC place or something. Mm-hmm. And like then you later chose a digital distributor. Digital distributors now you can get ISRC. So that's like yes. the unique code yeah. for every right. song that where how you get tracked for billboard charts as well as um, like for streaming royalties. So I remember you hitting me up and you're like, okay, I got these. Uh, and then I realized I didn't need to buy this. I'm so pissed. And I was like, well, any digital distributor that gets them, they get it from that source. You just went directly to the source. And in class, I told you about the source. They all come from here. Mm-hmm. Fuck. So maybe that's where I let you down. I didn't make a point of like, you yeah. don't necessarily have to get them from here, but they all come from here. I like the idea. It's just like a giant fountain of ISRCs and you have to go fishing. <laughs> There's the source. It's like the wellspring of ISRCs. And you just run up and you start grabbing them out of the water, like during salmon spawning season. Well, honestly, one of my favorite teaching moments is seeing Bobby play in his new project called Innis. And it is one of the funnest shows ever because, Bobby, you take your spirit of your playing from the Locust and you meet it halfway with the spirit of your teaching. And I felt like I just got like a rock and roll crash course mixed in with with social politics in one night. And I think that is one of the best shows that I've seen at Soda Bar in San Diego. Oh, nice. Can you talk about your Innis live shows, please? Because it's the best. Oh, well, thanks for that kind words there, Jarek. Yeah, so aside from The Locust, there's another band I'm in called Innis, or the Institute for Navigating the Universal Self. And <laughs> very much a like it. critique on overpriced for-profit higher education, such as mm-hmm. the Art Institute of California, San Diego, a college of Argus, a university. <laughs> <laughs> and other social you know, critiques of society and whatnot. And so there's PowerPoint presentations along with the show. And our merch table would be like, for $1, you could get a bachelor's degree in outdated technology. <laughs> and they would print it right there with like a frame from the 99 awesome. cent store. So it's yeah. like, you know, <laughs> we got one cent profit per degree that we sold. That is great. In a way, that was kind of like therapy for me to deal with being a teacher at the Art Institute. I kind of always saw myself as like infiltrating that institution because it's like people hit me up. Dan Meyer was like, hey, you know, like you want to come teach like an experimental class at this school? And I looked at the school. I was like, oh, man, I don't know about that place. (laughs) 
And I was like, oh, this is a perfect opportunity for me to like Trojan horse this institution and I'll take it down from the inside. Which you did. It doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> that was not because of my effort. But... The long con. <laughs> well, let's pretend it was. <laughs> See, that's what teaching does. It makes you think that teaching is entertainment, but it's maybe not. I don't know. Oh, no, dude. Th- th- there's a lot of, you know, I-, I spent many years as an academic. There's a lot of like kind of wannabe entertainers who channel that through their teaching lecturing to a big class, you know, like UCSD size university, you might be teaching classes to like three, 400 students, if not more. I know a number of physicists who got a performance type, you know, thrill from teaching large lecture classes. Absolutely. How often were they doing their type fives? They definitely had jokes that they would say from time to time. And as you get older, they have these like canned jokes that they just say year after year after year, which it goes through this like uncanny valley type curve where at first you're like, oh, that's funny. And then it starts to sound too rehearsed. And, you know, when you're on year five or whatever, and then it's like, oh, come on, dude, like update your material. But then they get old and it's cute. Because it's like, it's good again. you know, oh, look at the old guy with his, you know, his, his jokes from 30 years ago. Oh, God, that's so patronizing. <laughs> what can I say? They're, they're trying to have a good time. You're teaching, you know, physics 101 for the 20th year in a row. You got to keep it fresh, right? Oh, I'm not saying it's not untrue. It's just funny that it's patronizing. I mean, definitely, you know, when I was a grad student and TAing these large lecture classes, you know, I wasn't like preparing jokes and shit to say. I was just like up there fucking doing problem sessions, solving shit at the board. And I would try to keep it entertaining, you know, be funny, that sort of stuff. It does feel like performing only except there's a right answer at the end of the day. <laughs> Depends on the subject, but... Yeah, right. Absolutely. There is a lot of similarities to that. You know, it's like writing classes, I would approach it like writing an album. It's like you got to have a really good beginning. You got to have a really yep. good end. And then, you know, make sure the rest of the shit in the middle makes sense. But it's very much, it's like, it's a stage, you know, it's like going up there and <laughs> doing your thing. I'm still in the valley part of that. I'm still waiting for the next uh, mountaintop. <laughs> uh, you know, when I get old enough to where it's like, oh, that's cute again. He's doing like uh, <laughs> silly jokes. I mean, you do, you got to hold people's attention. You got to do crazy shit sometimes. Absolutely. I actually found out this trick at the school I teach at now, which is a much better place, I have to say, um, Studio West and the Recording Arts Center. It's not a huge corporation. It's like owned by, you know, a couple people and it's pretty awesome and it's, it's great. But this one trick I learned is like when you smack down on the table, I was able to get to the next slide. And when I realized that, I was like, oh, this is fantastic, you know, because <laughs> yeah. smacking down on things, that's, that's how you get like people's attention, you know, but especially if you smack down and there's a function to it, like there's a reason. Like I'm not just smacking down, I'm smacking down to change the slide, you know? <laughs> I want to tell you guys a story, though, uh, that this reminds me of. Have I told you about one of the first times I ever, like, TA, TA to class, guest lecture to class? I was an undergraduate. I was a math music student. And I was the TA for a statistics class. And the professor asked me to fill in. You know, she was away for the day, asked me to fill in. And she asked me to teach the birthday problem. Do you guys know what the birthday There's no way you know what the birthday problem is. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Because you're math noobs. So <laughs> the question is... How many people do you need to have in a room before the odds are more than 50% that two people have the same birthday? Not year, but date, okay? So if you had to guess, how many people 
do you need to have in a room? I'll, let me poll the three of you. How many people do you need to have in a room? So the obvious choice, you say, oh, 365. But then, yes, the thing is like, it depends. More people are born probably at a certain time and more people are doing it in the summer. So in the nine months after that, and then, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I got too many variables. I can't answer that one. Okay, Jarek, Layden. 500. Well, then you're guaranteed, basically. You didn't specify. Sorry, that was so dismissive. But no, if you have more than 365 people, right, it is impossible that no two people share the same birthday, right? Because then there just aren't enough days in the year. So at 365 people, the odds are, or 366, I guess, the odds are 100% that two people will share the same birthday because there's... I guess it's 367 because of a leap year. But after 367, you just can't fit more dates into the year, right? Gotcha. Okay. So, Jarek, give me a number here. Like, be someone to give me a number, please. It has to be within 365. So, how many people do you need to have in a room? You have a collection of people where the odds are over 50% that two share the same birthday. 65. 11D4. 11D4, perfect. The answer is 23, which is shockingly low. Right. What? So if you have more than 23 people in a room, the odds are over 50% that two share the same birthday. And as you add more people, the odds go up, right? As you get to 367, then the odds are 100%. So I had to teach this. I had to derive this result in statistics to a big class of like 50 students. And I can't remember exactly what the numbers were, but when you have 50 people in the same room, the odds are like very, very high that two people will share the same birthday. So I thought of a stunt, okay? Here is my stunt. I went to the supermarket, the local supermarket in Williamstown, Massachusetts, and I bought a small bottle of clam juice, which is something that you can use in recipes, like linguine with white clam sauce or whatever. It is, you know, the juice from clams. And so I teach a birth problem, 23 people, there's like... 50 people in the room. And I say, if no two people in this room share the same birthday, I'm going to drink this bottle of clam juice in front of you. Nice. So what I didn't count on was as I was doing the derivation, like half the class leaving. (laughs) They were there for a professor, not for my ass. Like, (laughs) so I'm doing the thing. People are slowly walking out. And then it gets to the end, and I'm like, well, I said I'd do it, so here goes. We go around the room, and I ask everybody their birthday. It's not looking good. We're halfway through. There's like maybe 18 people left or whatever. We get to the end. No two people have the same birthday. I'm like, fuck. So I open the bottle of clam juice and pound it. And (laughs) some probably freshman or whatever, in the front row. She covers her mouth and leaves to go barf, (laughs) I guess. And it was a true shining moment in, you know, wannabe professorial, uh, what do I say? Describe the sensory experience of pounding a bottle of clam juice. Well, Layton, here's the thing. (laughs) Do you know what looks just like clam juice? Lemonade. So I had, without telling anyone, switched the clam juice for Aww. lemonade. Ah, this cop guy. Out. Yeah, cop total out. cop out. But you know, I I'm, wouldn't you know, expect honesty, you, Brian honesty Wex, prevents the piss me. drinker, to, to really. I do feel the need out. to clarify here. 
uh, mostly for Bobby's sake and for our new listeners, that I was in, at first, involuntary piss drinker. So I, I, I drank my own piss without knowing it was my own piss. I thought it was someone else's piss. Hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, was, it, was, it was a mix-up with a bottle of green tea, and I will leave it at that. But yeah, you, oh. you think I'm going to drink a bottle of you, clam juice? It's probably fine. It's probably that. fine. What did you just dump the clam? That's a waste of good clam. <laughs> it's a, it wow. is a waste of good clam. Thank you, Leighton. And you know, a lot of good clams died that day to to <laughs> let me teach a math class. But I think they would have wanted it this way. That's what I told myself. <laughs> I have a question for Bobby. This is totally clam unrelated. No clams in this. Yeah, no, no clams, clams. in this, Bobby. Bobby, I just love going down the scouring valleys of YouTube and coming across 31G's YouTube. And two of my favorite videos involve you. One of them is Holy Molar at Mitchapalooza. And the second one is your interview with... Um, Extreme Elvis. Extreme Elvis. <laughs> yes. I showed Extreme Elvis to Brian. I didn't show it to yes. you, Leighton. Um, I only sent it to Brian. Wow, what the fuck? He's Elvis with attitude, <laughs> let's just say. Okay. So which would you like me to speak about? Oh, I want you to speak about both, if you can. Mitchapalooza was one of my favorite stories you've told me, but I've never asked you about Extreme Elvis. Okay, I'll, I guess we'll start with that. So yeah, so there's this guy, Extreme Elvis, and there was a buddy of ours that we knew, Virgil Porter, who was doing this series of interviews. And he's like, oh, I'll have this guy do it. This guy's crazy. This guy was kind of known for like doing ridiculous stuff, like throwing chickens into audience, like, and, you know, Live dressed chickens? like Elvis. Yes, but he's a rather large person, you know, so he's just like this extreme version of Elvis as an Elvis impersonator, but he didn't do Elvis covers, I don't think. So anyway, it's like this <laughs> sort of like a Gigi Allen Elvis large person situation. Wow. And great. so he interviewed us and I don't know what ended up happening. He was asking us questions and it kind of went off the rails, I guess. I somehow I ended up like kissing him because this is a time in my life when I guess I was a little bit more philosophical and experimental uh, in my mm-hmm. in my days. I mean, this mm-hmm. was around the time I was kind of a faux nudist as well, which just basically was like me hanging out at my house when there was parties and just like being nude and like crusty <laughs> punks being like, dude, put on some clothes. And just me being like, dude, I'm the only one who lives here. Like you're at my house, like chill out. <laughs> oh man, all right, fine. You know, like... You know, continue to drink the King Cobra 40 ounce or whatever. So anyway, it was, it was around that time period in my 20s. Okay, I'm a much older, wiser person now. And so mm-hmm. this is an old interview. And yeah, so I don't know, end up kissing the guy and it just got ridiculous. And um, did he taste like Elvis? Uh, what was Elvis like? Like fried? Yeah, fried peanut butter and banana sandwiches. That's what I would guess Yeah, I don't Elvis think I like. did not detect any of that uh, mm-hmm. at the time. No. So anyway, so that was the Elvis thing. And the other thing, Mitchapalooza. So that was another band that I was in called Holy Molar. And we did a tour and someone had hit us up in Arizona, like outside of Phoenix in some like rich suburb. And it was some kids like, I think 18th birthday party or something. Mm-hmm. And it was like this really ridiculous, you know, request. Sometimes people hit you up and ask you to do things. And it's like, oh, that's nice. And that's cute. Like, happy birthday. But no, we can't do that. We're going to play like a club or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one, we're like, 
wouldn't it be ridiculous if we just said yes and did it? And we were kind of like, all of us were like, ah, yeah, let's just say yes. And, you know, whatever, you know, like didn't think we'd really do it. And then the day came and it's like, all right, this is that guy's birthday, Mitch's birthday. We're like, ah, I don't know. We, then we drove there. And he, he knew you were coming or you were surprised him. Yeah, no, we, we were like, yeah, we're going to be there. And we got there and we filmed the whole thing. It's actually on a DVD. So we played it. It was like really weird. Like there was like pizza delivery in the middle of the set. It was like this guy's parents Mm -hmm. were like cruising around and and it was like his buddies and they were pretty, you know, I don't know, at the time, you know, straight laced kind of like people around 19 years old. And then there was like subculture weirdos that would show up too. And they looked equally confused as like, why are we in some rich kid's house? Because you put it out there that you're doing a show at this place. (laughs) It's like, why are they playing here? Like that was the weird thing. It's like... So that's how that came about. And then uh, it became Mitchapalooza. That is fantastic. Have you stayed in touch with Mitch? Unfortunately, I have not, no. But I'm sure I could track him down. Hope he's doing well. Mitch, if you're listening, hey, happy birthday. (laughs) He was 18 years old and this was when-ish? Oh, let's see. This must have been uh, 2005-ish, something like that. Okay, so 17 years ago. So this kid is 35 now. Oh, yeah. He's probably successful, and I'm sure it had nothing to do with that incident. (laughs) (laughs) That rules. I love that you did that. You know, I'm in a band. We get invited to, like, weddings and stuff. And I should say, we have never played a wedding and are unlikely to at any time in the future. But, I don't know. Look, hey, if the money's right, I'll do anything. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I feel like with a wedding, you never quite know what you're walking into in terms of, let's just say, sound system alone. But I've always wanted to do stuff like this because I think it would be fun. Or I think it would be theoretically fun, maybe is the best way of saying it. Was it worth doing? Financially, it was not worth doing. Actually, if I recall correctly, like (laughs) they were supposed to pay us a certain amount and then they ended up not paying that amount. And at the time- fucking Mitch. (laughs) Mitch's parents. Mitch's dad. No, he was 18, dude. He can pay it for it himself. (laughs) Yeah, it's like a pay-to-play model at Mitch's house, <laughs> you know. And so Mark, the singer, uh, who was singing for another band, Charles Bronson, but he sang for Holy Muller, and he'd given Mitch like records that were on his label, Youth Attack. And then we didn't get paid or whatever, whatever the agreement was. I can't even remember what it was. And then like I just remember Mark like took his records back. He's like, well, <laughs> then in that case, like I'm taking these like birthday records back, dude. Rules. <laughs> so it's like, oh man, let them keep the records at least. I mean, it's not like they were on the hook to pay you 20 grand or something. No, right? a few hundred bucks or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mitch is dead. You know. Why don't we move on to some segments here? Yeah. I feel like this is a good time for some seggies, as we call them on the show. The first segment we have is our pop culture recommendation segment. It's where you get to talk about a book, a movie, a video game, something you've been enjoying recently. It can be literally anything. It's called What's Poppin'? And the theme song, which we add in post, goes here. What's poppin'? What's poppin'? So, Jarek, why don't you start us off? What's poppin'? Yeah. So, what is poppin' for me? It's pretty topical. By the time this episode comes out, a set event might be at the end or on the cusp of the finals, but... The U.S. Open Grand Slam Tennis Tournament is happening right now. Um, It is Venus and Serena. I think more of the spotlight is on Serena Williams that she kind of vaguely announced her retirement or she like vaguely announced that she's stepping back from tennis after like 25, 20-something years 
and playing yeah. tennis. And I think Venus is the same as well. So everybody's like flooding the stadiums to watch the sisters play. So it's like their last tournament. Yes, and I think they've said that, but I think they've been vague about if they're going to like stop playing or like fully retire. Like there was an interview that came out yeah. with Serena a couple of days ago where they asked, you've been pretty vague about your retirement. She's like, yeah, I'd like to keep it that way. Great. I'm evolving from tennis. And it sucks because like Serena's like playing pretty good. I saw the highlight reel. And I'm like, fuck, do you really want to go out right now? How old is she now? Like 30 something, right? No, she's like in her early 40s, like probably like 40. Early 40s. Fuck. Wow. And still going strong. Amazing. Yeah. Absolutely. She can still compete. She just had a lull because last year during Wimbledon, she slipped in the first round and she hadn't played basically till like a couple months ago. And so she's like starting to pick it back up. I feel like she could win one more like big tournament. It would come in time. But long story short, I think this is like her last, her and Venus's last wow. big Grand Slam. Amazing. Is there an obvious like successor to them as like the next great player in that division or whatever? For a while, it was Naomi Osaka, but Naomi mm -hmm. Osaka has also kind of like slowed down her playing after like the 2020, 2021 French Open. She's like slowed down playing and she's like kind of come down to ranks and really hasn't been active or winning as much. But then I think the next uh, successor is Coco Goff who kind of has like a very similar style to more so Venus. So I would say that's like the next successor, at least one in the States. She's American, Coco Goff. Coco Goff is American. Naomi Osaka technically plays for Japan. Awesome. Brian, what's popping? Hell yeah. What's popping for me this week, actually just starting a cool puzzle website called The Rackenfracker. Dot com. They do what in the puzzle community are known as variety cryptics. So these are like not just straight kind of grid crosswords. Maybe there's like the grid is weird or there's some trick to it or something like that. And cryptics are the clues aren't just like definitions. There's wordplay and, and various other trickery involved. It's my favorite kind of crossword. If you think about like a classic, like British style crossword, it's kind of like that, although there are separate traditions for England and America. But I just found out about this through my favorite cryptic crossword site, which is the Out of Left Field Patreon, which I've mentioned on the show before. And they had a guest puzzle by these constructors, whose names I forget offhand, but you can get all their puzzles. There's only three of them right now. They're just free to download at the Rack and Fracker Dot com. It's spelled exactly like it sounds. Rack, E-N, frack, E-R. And yeah, it's a fun site by some constructors that were new to me, and I, I like their work. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. Layton. Layton. As my daughter says. Layton. Hi, oh, Layton. Yeah. <laughs> and also over the weekend was like, Layton, is the way I say your name okay? It's just like, yes, yeah. of course it's okay. It's because you're the one saying it. Nobody else says it like that. Please. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, what's popping for me is a book that you and I, Brian, have not talked mm. about at all. Ooh. Wink. Uh -oh. Wink. But it's The Making of the Atomic Bomb by Richard Rhodes, mm -hmm. which is exactly what it sounds like. Won a Pulitzer. I was just curious because I knew nothing about said making of the atomic bomb. And I just like can't put it down every spare moment I get. And it's super long too. It's just absolutely fascinating. And I've been loving it. And I'm not even at like the bomb part. Recording this is super fun. The moment we get off this, I'm going back to my corner and I'm that rules. pounding that book. 
So yeah, that's what's popping for me. It is recognized as one of the great science books of the 20th century. Absolutely. It is really incredible. I did get to the moment, you know, after like 27% of this book is kind of all building up to the moment of, you know, the physicist being like, my God, this is going to kill all of us. And like the way it's articulated is just so chilling. And then it goes straight into part two. And it was like, ah, ooh, no, no, not good. So yeah, highly, highly recommend. Feynman put on a pair of sunglasses and breakdanced. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Bobby, what's popping? I guess riding a bit of the coattails of Jarek, actually, I'm going to do something out of the ordinary for myself yeah, and, do it. And, and say something sports related. Oh my. <laughs> what's popping in Bobby's world is... Major League Baseball. So this, okay. this is a very weird thing for me because you know started out in my intro. I've devoted my life to audio and music, and for some reason, like purposefully left sports out of my life. Kind of like this false dichotomy fallacy. Like, well, if you like music, you can't like sports. There's so many, so many mm-hmm. hours in the day, and you got to choose one. And now in my 40s, in my mid 40s, I'm realizing that there's you know things that I've been leaving out of my life, and so I'm trying to unlock these worlds, unlock these codes, unlock these. Uh, other levels of life, if life was a video game kind of thing. And sports. Why? Why do so many people like sports? And so I've been living in San Diego. So I've gone to, I think, three or four Padres games uh, this Mm -hmm. year. And it's very fascinating. I'm very much going into it as an outsider, as a sort of like doing faux research. It's kind of in us related research. And so things I've done is like implement screamo type screaming, you know, as the Uh chance. Can you do some for us, please? I made a little clip. It's on Instagram, on my Instagram. I'm very seldomly on social media, but I have on my Instagram pages like a, a clip of me doing a scream for a Korean baseball player who's on the Padres. And so one of these findings of my research, my faux research here, is that baseball games is one of the few places where it is acceptable to scream your head off. There's very few places where you can do that, I've found in my life. Rehearsal spaces, on stage, and at sporting <laughs> events. And so I became really into this one particular player, Hassan Kim. And so I'm trying to time it, there's a chant that goes for him. It goes, let's go, Kim, let's go, Kim. And so I timed the high pitch one to, and I'm really, really loud at my screaming. Like it's like mm-hmm. every time I do it, whatever section I'm in, like they all stare at me usually the first <laughs> few times. And then they kind of like get used to it. They're like, all right, there's a screamer in our section. But I'm pretty sure that the players can actually hear it when I do it. Can I play it? Here, I'm going to sure, hear it. I'm on your screen. By the way, I noticed that this post was liked and commented upon by uh, Matt Otley. Do you know Matt? Oh, yeah. Oh, Dude, yeah. He's, he's been our sound guy for every tour I've done, except the one we're going out right now for my band. I've known Matt forever, and he, he's actually done sound for The Locust, too. Oh, shit. Okay, well, he's absolutely one of my favorite people. What an awesome dude. Yes. What a fun connection. Okay, so here. Here we go. I'm going to turn this up. That was phenomenal. So that moment, like I strategically did it at 
just the moment right before the pitcher threw the ball. And of course, the guy got a hit, you know, and I'm not it. saying that, it, you know, it impacted the game, but I think that there's a possibility of that happening as I'm experimenting with that. Can I, as a screamo vocalist, influence a baseball game, bringing this different skill set to this different format? Oh, I love this. And, you know, it's a known thing about baseball players that it's like, if you get three hits out of 10, like you're amazing. If you get two yep. hits out of 10, you suck. And so there's a lot of like weird, like, superstition, like every good player yep. has like weird ticks and they're very sensitive. And so they are yeah. susceptible to like variables out there, you know? And so sure. I'm trying to be one of those variables, but a supportive one for the local team. I've learned to try to not be negative. I started out doing like goblin voices, like trying to hex the pitchers of the opposing team. Pitcher, you're going to lose control of the balls, you know? And... And um, so I stopped doing that. My girlfriend convinced me, my girlfriend Heather, she said, oh, you know, don't do negative, do positive. Like, oh, you're right. I should be a positive person, not a negative person. I'm bringing in the wrong energy kind of thing. So I've been toying around with this. That video is like one of the results of that. Dude, I got to ask, because I'm always curious with people who do scream vocals. Did you train to be able to do that, like without shredding your vocal cords or does it just come naturally? I mean, I've definitely practiced a lot. Back in high school, there's this bridge that I used to go under that has like an RT60 of like four seconds, you know, where Mm -hmm. there's like this nice reverb. And I would just go there and just scream my head off for hours at a time. And I would like change the timbre, like trying to utilize different ways of doing it. And I finally Uh got it to a, a nice, pretty good one that sounds like bloody hell, like someone's dying or something, you know? And so that's where I did that. I was back in high school. So I didn't take any vocal lessons for that. Apparently I think there are some people do actually do screamo vocal lessons now, but back in the day. I wouldn't be surprised. It's a very easy thing to get wrong, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't claim to do it properly. Like I don't sing for my diaphragm. I'd feel like I'm controlling like something in my esophagus, my throat muscles or somewhere in there, I can manipulate how the timbre by manipulating what's going on there. I can't say what muscles or even if there are muscles, but I know how to do it. And you can do it for like a whole set or whatever and be fun. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. Amazing. The only time I've ever lost my voice was like when we were recording an album, Plague Soundscapes and the vocals, it took like a long time. So it was like more than the usual 30 minutes of screaming at a show. Mm -hmm. It was like, I don't know, however many hours, five hours or something. At the end of that day, yeah, I was a little hoarse. But uh, other than that, I'm pretty lucky. I've, I've never had that problem of losing my voice. Amazing. That's incredible. All right. Next, Seggy. The, the next. The next. Why, why, why are you looking like that? You're closing your the, eyes, Leighton. The next, Seggy. Yeah. It's time for our final segment that you'll probably hear two different theme songs for. It's usually peaches and lemons, but this time it is one peach each and lemons. So, theme song. Beautiful. So, because typically we would each do three. Nope, that's lemons for God. I'm so good at segments. At Seggies? Yeah. It's, Thank you, Derek. It's Seggies. You beat me to I'm very, it. Yeah. I'm an expert. <laughs> expert, seg, seg, segspert. Segster. You're a segspert. Yes. <laughs> yes, Layton. Come over to my side. Yes. <sighs> so we're each going to do one lemon, which is a minor bummer, annoyance, or inconvenience. Who would like to start? <laughs> oh, I'll start. Oh, Please. I'll start. <laughs> so I may have talked about this before. Most of my recording and work is done on a Mac Mini with an M1 chip. 
and it hates my USB hub. Every time I plug this fucking USB hub into this thing, it freaks out. Applications won't open. It seems to cause major problems with this computer's brain. It is absolutely the USB hub. It works like a dream when if I just plug in a single device, the printer, the camera, whatever, it's great. The moment this hub shows up, I'm fucked. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know how to, fa- I have a lot of shit that I need to plug in. Like sometimes I need more than two USB things plugged in. What am I supposed to do? It has two USB ports. It's, it's creating strife in my electronic life. And I like this computer a lot. It's done good work. It continues to record music and this show, but what the fuck is going on with this USB hub? I did read an article yesterday. Jerk and I were actually texting about this because he knows I've had this issue for a while. And I read some article. I don't know how well-sourced this was, but the title of the article was something like, are USB hubs eating Mac minis? And or destroying their minds or something like that. So I think this is a known issue. I don't know if it's an M1 chip thing or what, but God fucking damn it. Like this USB hub is ruining my life. Maybe I need to get a different one. I need hard drives. Like what am I supposed to do? Can somebody please clip Brian's voice cracking on shit? I just want that for my own (laughs) personal usage. So that's my lemon. Layton, you got lemons? Oh, I got a lemon. All right. So this morning, as I do sometimes, I woke up early and I was like, I'm going to go take my iPad to a coffee shop and I'm going to sit and I'm going to write stuff and I'm going to draw stuff. And so I did that. I have my lovely little coffee. There's a specific spot in the very, very back of the place that I call my sneaky creeping table, only because it's the most highly defensible position in a coffee Can't shop. Can't even tell Nobody you how much I love that. Me. Yeah. Yeah. I got to get the sneaky creeping table. And if somebody else takes mm. it, I'm upset. Actually, you know, hold on. I have to back up for this story because I forgot the preamble. As I'm walking there, I get stopped by a man, which never great, but he's he's like, ma'am, do you live around here? Have you seen this man? And ma'am. he showed- Wow. Yeah. And so he showed me a picture of a guy and then he like pulls out his badge and he's like, I'm an investigator. And I ask because this man lives right on this street here and he is a, tells me the crime he's committed, which I will not say on the show, uh-huh, uh-huh. thrice. And they're, he's trying to find the guy. And I was like, nope, haven't seen him. That sucks. Okay. See ya. Thanks. So I go to the coffee shop. I'm in the coffee shop. And then as I'm drawing, a guy comes up to me and is like, oh, are you an artist? And what follows is, honestly, God bless this man. I think he was just really awkward, but I got stuck in a very long conversation with him, like coming to sit with me and talking. I was like not, and me like politely trying to extricate myself and like, it was not a good time. He was not picking up on cues. No, but also admittedly, I'm bad at like not being a bitch. And, you know, it's hard because like you feel pressure to- be like nice and friendly. And then that is taken as like, yes, continue. Right. Anyway, I leave and I'm like, ah, I have a meeting. I have to go see ya. Uh, And then as I'm walking back, the cop is on the back street and he's like, hey, this is where he lives. And I'm like, okay, cool. And then he crosses the street to talk to me and starts lecturing me about being careful. And is like, we swatted him last week. Did you hear about that? And I was like, no. And he's like, oh, so you don't pay attention to, to what happens in your neighborhood? And I was like, I guess. And he's like, oh, so you only pay attention when it's on your street. Whoa, what? Then he described what he was doing as playing a game of cat and mouse three times. And it's like, honey, it's not a game of cat and mouse when you're standing in front of the man's house yelling at anybody who walks past. 
And then he was like, see, you know, this is important to me. I have eight sisters. I just want to protect them, you know, make sure everybody's protected. Like my sisters also not all cops are bad. It's just like, dude, I am not in the fucking mood to get lectured by a cop. Also, why does every cop that I've talked to in the last three years have like the biggest persecution complex of all times? Like, motherfucker, you have a gun. Stop whining. Anyway, so that like ruined my mood this morning and I've been angry about it all day. <laughs> it's just like, wow, men, please stop. Thank you. All right. Sorry. I'm spiced. I understand. Thank you. That's, that's very good feminist of you. Yeah, I, I'm extremely, extremely woke. <laughs> Somebody else's lemon. Bobby, do you have a lemon? Oh, tough to follow that one. Jeez. Now my lemon. I, Actually, what you should say is I was in this coffee shop earlier today and I was talking to this lady drunk. Yeah. Yeah. She was really turning up the charm. Bobby, do you also want to tell me about your swords? <laughs> oh, no. I do have a coffee lemon, though. So I may yeah, have segue it. from Ooh. that. Okay. So here's the lemon. It's a pretty simple one. Why is there no just simple black iced coffee at 7-Elevens. It drives me crazy. There's always okay, like sugar, yes. cream, milk, vanilla, mocha. You're in the refrigerator, right? Yeah. Like I want yes. cold, iced, black coffee. I'm just like, oh man, I know there's going to be like 5,000 choices and none of them are going to be what Dude. I want. I don't understand why, why does everyone need so much sugar and cream in their shit? I, I want the caffeine. Yes, it's a drug. Yes, I use it wisely. I have exactly the same amount that I like to have. I like to control it. I make it at home. And occasionally, I don't have time. Or I ran out that time, you know, or whatever. The French press is kind of small or whatever. And so then, it's crapshoot. I'm like, oh no, and I dread it. I go, oh my gosh, is this 7-Eleven going to come through or not? They never do. Today, I bought one and I was like, oh my God, was not my normal 7-Eleven. And they had one and it said black coffee on it. I was like, oh, cool. I couldn't believe it. There was one option. And then I started drinking it and it's like a super sugary vanilla thing. And I was like, what? And I looked closer. I can't believe they mislabeled it and they still had that. I learned the hard way. So I grew up uh, in Jersey, North Jersey, outside New York and did not drink coffee growing up. So when I was in grad school, I started drinking coffee and then came back went into New York, ordered a black coffee. And I learned that black just means no milk. And if you order a black coffee, they will give you a coffee sometimes with sugar. Yeah. And I was like, what? No, black means nothing. It means nothing in the coffee, just coffee. And I am so mad when people get confused about this. And I, I, I feel you 100%. I also, I just want coffee. I very, very occasionally I'll have a tiny bit of sugar, but I love iced coffee it's impossible to find just black iced coffee at a fucking convenience store half the time. Yeah, it's fine. I don't judge people for putting no, cream sure. and sugar. Like, more power to you. You know, that's great. But like, are we like such a minority of people who like to drink I just black coffee? I don't understand why. I don't get it either. Yeah, I learned that thing too about black not meaning it. That's why I can't even like go to like Starbucks. They do that thing where there's like sugar in it. So I just like make my own at home. Here's the thing that really pisses me off, Okay. Do you know what you can do with a black coffee? You can add sugar and milk to it. Exactly. Right? So why is the default all this shit already added in? Like, you do your own work, basically. Like, if you want that shit in your coffee, put it in yourself. Unconscionable. The biggest problem in society today. (laughs) Absolutely. Agree. I don't know how y'all do it. I wonder if after I reach a certain age, I will suddenly flip and enjoy black coffee. But I love coffee. I 
cannot do black coffee, no matter how yeah, like really? nice the coffee is. What do you need in your coffee? Just like a little half and half, a little sugar, not a whole mm-hmm. lot. Like a whole lot is disgusting to me, yep. despite yeah. loving my sugary Starbucks drinks. But if it's just like straight up too much milk and too much sugar, it's ruined. I just need like mm-hmm. a little bit, but nothing I can't do. Yeah. All right, Jarek, lemon. My lemon is, I don't think I can ever get rid of this lemon unless this person moves away. Oh, yes. Unfortunately, or ultimately, Please let it be about me. (laughs) (laughs) But anyways, throughout the day, there's always some asshole who like smokes cigarettes around my apartment and it always just makes its way in. And even if it's like the most minimal smell of cigarettes, it just like blows up my whole apartment. Like I will, I, I will catch that. it for like the first twenty seconds. I'm like, oh fuck, this motherfucker's out again. And I always like do this like bickering thing where I'm like, oh, I fucking love cigarettes. <laughs> you loudly say, oh, yeah. I fucking love cigarettes. That's amazing, dude. Yeah, amazing. I'll get heated. It comes at like nine or ten p.m. when I'm just like vibing, you know. I'm just like I'm just like want to watch yeah. like tennis highlights, yeah. you know. I don't want no shit. And then some assholes yep. just like chain smoking. I think the worst thing is that like I don't know where this person lives, and the second worst thing is that again, even if it's like the slightest billow of smoke or whatever smell, no matter how much the amount, it still like sits in my apartment. So yep. I have to wait for this asshole to be done smoking his or her cigarette. So whoever this person is, you can go fuck yourself. Wow. Brutal, <laughs> brutal takedown. Musician roasts local smoker. Sorry. <laughs> like put a fan at your window or door blowing out, get a HEPA filter. Like, have you tried things on your end? But again, why should he have to do the work? It's someone else's. Like, <laughs> well, I mean, it's, yeah. it is legal for people to smoke cigarettes. I don't smoke cigarettes, but you know, if it's no, permissible. Right. It's just like have some shame. Oh, yeah. Sure. I'm sure they're smoking it within like their own private section of their home, which is fine. And I, you know, I have to deal with it. And I understand that, you know, it's within their rights and within their privacy. I think my thing is just like, uh, like I think the thing is I can't do anything about it because like I only have like two ways for air to get into my apartment and one being this giant sliding door to the other one is the window in my kitchen. And my AC is like on the parallel wall to my sliding door. So I can like push quote unquote, the smoke air out of my apartment. But I feel like that just like circulates it. Dude, I feel you. I am not a smoker. I've never been. Obviously, I I smoke weed constantly as well documented on this show. (laughs) But if there's a little bit of smoke, just a little bit of smoke in the air, I can sense it and I'm mad. And then the other part of that is... Ever since reading years ago that sometimes when you have a brain tumor, you get this sense of smoke. Every time I smell a little bit of smoke, I'm like, wait a minute. Is that just the tumor? (laughs) When I was a kid, my mom like chain smoked inside. Yeah, my parents did too. And same like going to Germany, to everywhere, smoke inside and you smell it. And it's just like, well, okay. Yeah. When in Rome. (laughs) Uh, Peaches. Peaches. We will each do one peach, which is a cool and good thing that either happened or is going to happen. One peach, one peach each. 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 I will start this off. This episode, this comes out on the 9th. Is that right? Yes. Friday, September 9th. 
awesome, which is the first show of my upcoming tour in Columbus, Ohio. So when this episode drops, that day I will be starting the first tour in, you know, whatever, two and a half, three years, something like that. And I'm very excited to get back on the road and a lot of fun shows coming up. And I'm just psyched to be back out there again. Is that Ninja Sex Party? It's Ninja Sex Party. Yep. So we're doing a new tour for us, a new type of show. It's uh, an acoustic show. So it's me and my partner, Dan, in the band. I play keys. He's a vocalist. And we have an acoustic guitar duo backing us. And then our producer, who's going to be like our utility player, is doing some percussion, some bass, uh, a couple songs we have three guitars on. We rearranged all the songs for that instrumentation. And it was a fun challenge to do it. We just finished rehearsals this weekend, and they went really well. So I'm psyched for people to see the show. And I'm just excited to uh, go get COVID. <laughs> so, no, I, oh God, like fingers crossed. We're, we're, we're keeping it pretty locked down backstage. Are you playing San Diego? No, the closest we're getting is LA. When's the LA show? So I can come crash it? The LA show, it's no, November sometime. When bands don't play San Diego, is the Lemons part is over? Yeah. <laughs> we, you know what? I will say, so last time we played San Diego, we played Soma, and uh, not our best turnout, honestly. That's why. Don't play Soma. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, no, believe me, it was not my... It's because we like to do all-ages shows when we can, and that was like the room our agents could get. So LA show is... November 8th. November 8th. At the Montalban, Ricardo Montalban Theater. I will be there. So that'll be fun. Wow. So that's that's my peach. I'm excited to be touring again. And I also get to play here. I'm going to sneak a peach in here. <gasps> I got this new Nord, hey, which yo. I'm very excited about playing. This thing is so fucking dope. Yeah. It's so incredibly I finally cool. decided to spend more than $300 on a 88-key <laughs> digital piano. <laughs> uh, so... Yeah. Nice. Hell yeah, gamer. Jarek, peach. So my peach is that I am going back home to Hawaii. More specifically, I'm going back to Kauai in October for my friend Christine's wedding ceremony. She's going to have two wedding ceremonies. One in which this weekend I am going to officiate. I'm officiating my first wedding this weekend. And then she's going to have another ceremony for other parts of her family back home in Hawaii. So I haven't been back to Kauai in like three or four years now. It's been a very long time. So I'm going to go back home. And that will be a lot of fun. I get to go to the beach. Get to see some friends. Yeah. Get to eat Hell some yeah. fucking poke. Yeah, you are. Yeah. It'll be a great time. Big peach. Layton, what's your peach? My peach is that over the weekend on Sunday, I went with Brian's wife and child to the flea market and we got some sushi and we walked around the mall and Rachel bought me this little sloth stuffed animal that's sitting on top of my TV and then came back to Brian's house and got to see Jim Roach and the Guitar Bros and Dan and the Guitar Bros played some uh, Wii shopping channel music that it was one of those moments where I was like, God, this is so cool. And then... What was it that Audrey said, Brian? So these guys, Bobby, these guys are an acoustic guitar duo and they do video game music covers, but like classical guitar style and they're fucking insane players. Amazing. Like just total, like real precision shit. 
And they do this like flawless rendition of this, you know, it's kind of like a little bossa nova sort of thing. And my eight-year-old, when they finish, goes, it's so easy. You only have five strings each. The piano has like all these notes. And I was like, oh my God, Audrey, first of all, count the strings. First of all, count the strings. Second of all, guitar is not like easier than piano, okay? It's a different instrument with its own set of challenges. So can we not like judge based on that? Third, how about thank you for the music that you did not have to play for me and that I loved very much. You know, it was just one of those stunning like no filter things that kids say where you're like, these are my friends. These are our house guests. They were staying with us. And they're incredible, objectively great musicians who just played something flawlessly. And your comment was like, yeah, that looks easy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and then she had one earlier in the day when we got sushi where our waitress came up after getting the bill and was like, is your husband's name Brian? And it was like a sweet little fan interaction. Yeah, to, to Rachel, yes. not to me. Uh, and then the, as soon as she walks away, Audrey stands up and goes, let's get out of here. <laughs> 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 and then Rachel and I crack up and then Audrey's like, what? I'm cold. <laughs> I might have said this on the show before. This is my all-time favorite Audreyism. This was a year or two ago. We had some friends over for dinner and, you know, there was a couple and the guy in the couple, like Audrey was talking about whatever. And the guy in the, in the couple goes, you know, Audrey, you've got a great mom, but she's not the best mom in the world. You know who the best mom is? And his wife is sitting next to him on this side. And so he goes, do you know who the best mom in the world is? And Audrey, <laughs> without skipping a beat, goes, your hand? <laughs> Which, okay, so for those of you who couldn't see that, I was pointing at my hand. Like when you hold the hand up, like you're shielding the point from the other person. You know, people do this. It's like, you know, you make a little joke. And it absolutely brought the room down. It may be my favorite kid thing ever. That is incredible. Incredible. She's the greatest. Yeah. All right, Bobby. All right. This could have been the pop culture one too, but. There's a band called Radiohead. Maybe some of you heard of them. But. I like their singer, Thom Yorkie. <laughs> <laughs> for, for a long time, I didn't listen to Radiohead. I don't know. I was like, well, it's not like crazy, mathy, crazy music. And I was like, that's not what I'm into. And so, again, in my 40s now, I'm, I'm revisiting things. And I'm like, what have I missed over these decades? Like, there's all these, like, movies, all these shows that I didn't see when I was on tour. And, like, you know, there's entire genres of music. And so, a while back, I don't know, maybe like eight years ago, I discovered that, like, hey, Radiohead's pretty good. And so then I like quickly like downloaded all their albums, picked my favorite songs. I spent an afternoon like, okay, like kind of picking through, like I know what songs I would like, made my list. And then that was my Radiohead playlist of all my favorite songs. I listened to it for, you know, eight years or so. But I, I missed an album, Hail to the Thief. And so- Oh, shit, oh that's dude. a good one. I know, it slipped under my radar. And so probably like a month ago, I guess, I realized, oh shit, I missed one. I, I guess I experienced what like Radiohead fans would experience when that album got dropped. Like it was all brand new songs to me. And I was like, oh shit, this song's great. Like, oh damn. 
you know, so like Sail to the Moon, of course, my favorite song on there. But it's just exciting for me. It's like they just dropped the album, you know, so I'm still in the the newness of experiencing it. It's, It's fantastic. That's always fun. I'm very jealous of that. I am a huge Radiohead fan. And I think Hail to the Thief is often overlooked. I really really enjoy that album a lot. It's a great album, yeah. Straight bangers. I am also in my mid-slash-late 40s. I'm 47. Once you have completely abandoned the too-cool-for-school prejudices of being like a teenager or sometimes in your 20s, to just go back and reevaluate things and be like, or evaluate them for the first time, it's so much fun. As I've talked on this show extensively, I have gotten really into like soft rock over the last, you know, five years or so, like from the 70s wow. mostly. Stuff I absolutely dismissed when I was a kid. And yes, much of it, of course, sucks. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. But there's some of it that's like really, really great and like interesting, harmonically, really well produced. And now that I'm not, you know, waiting in a hair salon for my mom to, to finish getting her hair done, it is a lot more fun to, to listen to. Wow, that's great. I haven't quite gotten that far to the soft rock genre. But, uh. Oh, well, I could talk about smooth jazz, which is a separate thing. But there's some really good stuff hiding in there. I mean, it happens. You know, you, you end up in a bubble, whatever your bubble is. If it's audio, if it's music, if it's certain genres of music. And it is interesting, kind of like, God, there's entire worlds out there. So much life and things and people doing cool stuff. Yeah, I find a lot of this also happens where you get used to either a level of production or lack thereof that you're just like into. And at least as a kid, you know, if you're into really whatever underground kind of stuff, you highly produce stuff, you're like, oh, that fake bullshit. Or maybe it goes the other way and you're used to really slick stuff. And then it's like, oh, those other people don't know what they're doing. And it's really fun to like go to the other side of that and appreciate the awesome stuff about what both sides of kind of the production spectrum, high or low, uh, have to offer. Absolutely. Yeah. Can I sneak in another peach? Yeah, do it. Do it. Send okay. it. Okay. Another peach is, so the last thing that my band, The Locust, did when our drummer was still alive uh, was a remix of a Danny Elfman song. Oh, shit. Yeah. Cruel Compensation. And so the album was released. It's like a remix album. This is the one that just came out, right? Yeah, yeah, it just came out uh, a couple of weeks ago off the album Bigger, Messier, which is like an album of remixes of Danny Elfman's solo album that he did, Big Mess, like during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So it's great. It, it just came out. So like, that's a peach for me. That's awesome. All of us added a little bit. So I added a little bit of guitar and some vocals and Justin, the bass player and singer, he added vocals and Gabe, our drummer who passed away a couple months ago, mm-hmm. a few months ago, he did drums. So it's like the last recorded drums that, you know, he, so he recorded himself and then that got incorporated. And Joey, the synthesizer player, added a bunch of synths. Uh, oh, so wow. totally, totally great. Like the song and the lyrics, it's like kind of some way like fitting. And there's actually, I don't think I'm not supposed to say, but there's going to be a video for the song and like Danny Elfman's in it. Oh, shit. So you got to like Whoa. interact with him. Well, no, we have not directly interacted with him. And I grew up like, loving Oingo Boingo. Like, yeah, same. As a kid, it had such a significant impact on me. And to this day, like my sort of like approach to wacky, ridiculous shit is probably locked into like me being, you know, the five-year-old kid, like jumping on the bed, listening to Oingo Boingo albums. Yeah, totally. So that's a peach. Stoked on that. That's awesome, dude. 
That's yeah, I just heard he had a really good interview on Bullseye, the NPR show last week, where oh. he talked quite a bit about the new album. And it was a great interview with him. He kind of goes through every phase of his career from the Boingo stuff to film scoring and now the new stuff. A really fun interview worth listening to where he talks about this new album and the process. And he basically, I'm curious if this was your experience. He was like, yeah, I found bands I liked and just like turn tracks over to them and let them do whatever. That's pretty much it. Like we got uh, the individual tracks. We chose the song, cut the song up and yeah, had full control. Some of the remixes are just like so far beyond. Like there's like a Zach Hill one where it's just sounds almost nothing like the song. It's just like crazy yeah. Zach Hill music and like, which is rad, you know? Yeah, and like, totally. this is like little tiny bits of like the vocals coming through and like, wow, okay. That's just totally different, you know? But That's so great. yeah, I mean, totally like the the sort of artistic freedom is definitely like, let people do whatever the fuck they want. That rule. I have so much respect for that where he just trusts great people to be great, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, that brings us to the end of this show. Bobby... Thank you so much for being here. This is a lot of fun. And uh, Jarek, thank you for making the connection and being here as well. Yes. Always a joy. Wouldn't miss it for the world, Bobby. Great to see you. <laughs> Jarek, great to reconnect. Brian, I love doing this. And Lathan, I know I'm afraid to say your name. It's like, it's not Layton. Layton. It is Layton. Layton? Okay. Audrey. She just hits the T real hard. She hits okay. the T really hard. I think I say it. Layton, as Rachel put it, like you swallow the tea a little bit. You do a, a little glottal mm. stop. A little glottal stop. Bobby, where can people find your music, your socials, anything in particular you want to point them to? I'm not too big on social media, but like the locust has social media stuff. I mean, I'm not not proud of that, I guess, but it just just happens. <laughs> I have a website, robertbray.net, inus.guru, so I-N-U-S dot guru, G-U-R-U. <laughs> For, for that band and then thelocust.com um, and then I'm on Instagram or I have a pr Instagram profile and I post maybe once a year something like that perfect that's the perfect amount amazing folks at home if you are interested in late night merch you can go to oh, merch.latenight.com because we have our stay safe come hard black metal shirts are back and they're on even cozier shirts this time and they're very yep. cool and great way to support the show also, then you have to explain to strangers that your shirt says come on it. So good luck with that. <laughs> but doesn't have come on it. To be well, have, sorry. I well, don't want to speak for anybody. Come not included. Who knows? Yeah, come not included, of course. Asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. BYOC. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Oh, All right. Perfect. That's the end of the show. BYOC. See ya. <laughs> Bye. 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 Leighton Night is produced by Brian Wecht, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Night, on Instagram at Leighton underscore Night, or email us at LeightonKnight at gmail.com. <laughs>